Book Five, Chapter Three of the History of Sir Richard Carmody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anne Fletcher, Richmond, Tasmania, two thousand and twenty. The History of Sir Richard Carmody by Lucas Mallet. Book Five, Chapter Three. Helen de Valorbes apprehends vexatious complications four gowns lay outspread upon the indigo purple embroidered coverlet of the bed the afterglow of an orange and crimson sunset touched the folds of them ranged upwards to the vaultings of the frescoed ceiling and stained the lofty walls as with the glare of a furnace sea-greens sea-blues died in the heat of it abashed and vanquished but so did not madame de valorbe's white lawn and lace peignoir or her abundant hair which zélie forestière trim of figure and sour of countenance was in the act of dressing these caught the fiery light and held it so that from head to foot helen appeared as an image of living gold sitting before the toilet table her reflection in the great oval mirror pleased her which shall i wear ah that depends upon the length of time madame proposes to stay here the black dress might be worn on several occasions with impunity the peacock brocade the odenil and the crocus yellow but once twice at the utmost they are ravishing costumes but wanting in repose they are unsuited for frequent repetition zélie's lean fingers twisted puffed and pinned the shining hair very skilfully i will put on the black dress ah relieved by madame's parure of pink topaz yes i will wear the pink topazes then it will be necessary to modify the style of madame's coiffure oh, there's plenty of time Helen took a hand-glass from the table and leaned forward in the low, round-backed chair, faithful copy of a fine classic model. She wanted to see the full glory of the afterglow upon her profile, upon her neck and bosom. Thus might Cassiopeia, glass in hand in her golden chair, sit in high heaven. Helen smiled at the pretty conceit, but the glory was already departing sea-blues and sea-greens sad by contrast began to reassert their presence on walls and carpets and hangings the black dress madame decides to remain then as she spoke the lady's maid laid out the jewels chains bracelets and brooches each stone set in a rim of tiny rose knots of delicate workmanship as she fingered them little yellow-pink flames seemed to dance in their many facets then the afterglow died suddenly the flames ceased to dance helen's white garments turned livid her neck and bosom grey and that somehow was extremely unpleasing to madame de valorbe light the candles she said almost sharply yes i remain oh, do hurry zélie it is impossible to see i detest darkness hurry do you suppose i want to stay here all night and look you must bring that chain further forward it's not graceful make it droop let it follow the line of my hair so that the pendant may fall there in the centre you have it too much to the right the centre the centre i tell you there let the drop just clear my forehead 
thus admonished the frenchwoman wound the jewels in her mistress's hair but madame de valorbe remained dissatisfied the day had been one of uncertainty of conflicting emotions and helen's love of unqualified purposes was great confusion in others was highly diverting but in herself no thank you she hated it it touched her self-confidence it endangered the absoluteness of her self-belief and self-worship and these once shaken small superstitions assaulted her in trivial happenings she detected indication of ill luck now zaley's long narrow face divided into two unequal portions by a straight bar of black eyebrow and her lean hands as reflected in the mirror awoke unreasoning distrust they appeared to be detached from the woman's dark-clothed person the outlines of which were absorbed in the increasing dimness of the room the sallow face moved peered and the hands clutched and hovered independent and unrelated about helen's graceful head oh, for pity's sake more candles zaylee she repeated you look absolutely diabolic in this uncertain light oh, in an instant madame i am compelled first to fix this curl in place she accomplished the operation with most admired deliberation and moved away more than once to observe the effect before finally adjusting the hairpin i cannot but regret that madame is unable to wear her hair turned back from the face such an arrangement confers height and an air of spirituality which in madame's case would be not only becoming but advantageous helen skidded the hand-glass down upon the dressing-table causing confusion amid silver-topped pots and bottles endangering a jar of hyacinths and upsetting a tray of hairpins have i not repeatedly given you orders never to allude to that subject she cried the maid was on her knees calmly collecting the scattered contents of the tray a thousand pardons madame she said with a certain sour impudence still it must ever be a matter of regret to any one truly appreciating madame's style of beauty that she should always be constrained to wear her hair shading her forehead modern civilization imposes restrictions even upon the most high-spirited at that moment madame de valorbe was ripe for the commission of atrocities had she been as she coveted to be a lady of the roman decadence it would have gone hard with her waiting-woman who might have found herself ordered for instant execution or summarily deprived of the organs of speech but latter-day sentiment happily forbidding such active expressions of ill-feeling on the part of the employer towards the employed helen was forced to swallow her wrath reminding herself meanwhile that a confidential servant is either most invaluable of friends or most dangerous of enemies there is no via media in the relation and zaylee as an enemy was not to be thought of she could not displeasing reflection afford to quarrel with zaylee the woman knew too much therefore madame de valorbe took refuge in lofty abstraction while the tiresome uncertainties the conflicting inclinations of the past day quick to seize their opportunity as is the habit of such discourteous gentry 
returned upon her with redoubled importunity and force. She had not seen Richard since parting with him at noon, the enigmatic suggestions of his conversation still unresolved, the alternate resentment at his apparent indifference and attraction of his strong and somewhat mysterious personality still vitally present to her. Later she had driven out to Pozzuoli, but neither stone-throwing urchins, foul and disease-stricken beggars, the pale sulphur plains and subterranean rumblings of the sulphur terror, nor stirrings of nether fires therein resident by a lanky wild-eyed lad clothed in leathern jerkin and hairy goatskin leggings, with the help of a birch broom and a few local newspapers, nothing served effectually to rouse her from inward debate and questioning. The comfortable sea-spring carriage might swing and sway over the rough, deep-rutted roads behind the handsome black long-tailed horses. The melodramatic-looking coachman might lash stone-throwing urchins and anathematise them, their ancestors and descendants alike, to the third and fourth generation in the vilest Neapolitan Argo. Charles might resort to physical force in the removal of wailing, arms-demanding, vermin-eaten wrecks of humanity. But still Helen asked herself only, should she go? Should she stay? Was the game worth the candle? Was the risk, not only of social scandal, but of possible ennui, worth the projected act of revenge? And worth something more than that? For revenge, it must be owned, already took a second place in her calculations. Worth, namely, the enjoyment of possible conquest, the humiliation of possible defeat and rejection, by that strangely coercive, strangely inscrutable being, her cousin, Dicky Carmody. No man had ever impressed her thus, and she returned on her thought, when first seeing him upon the terrace that morning, that she might lose her head, Helen laughed a little bitterly. She, of all women, to lose her head, to long and languish, to entreat affection and to be faithful. Heaven help us, faithful! Could it ever come to that? Like any sentimental schoolgirl, like, and the thought turned her not a little wicked, like Catherine Carmody herself. And then, that other woman of whom Richard had told her, with a cynical disregard of her own claims to admiration, who on earth could she be? She reviewed those ladies with whom gossip had coupled Richard's name. Morabita, the famous prima donna, for instance. But surely it was inconceivable, that mountain of fat and good nature, with the voice of a seraph granted, but also with the intellect of a frog, could ever inspire so fantastic and sublimated a passion? And passing from these less legitimate affairs of the heart, in which rumour accredited Richard with being very much of a pluralist, her mind travelled back to the young man's projected marriage with Lady Constance Dacia, sometime Lady Constance Quayle, remembering the slow, sweet baby face and gentle heifer's eyes as she had seen them that day at luncheon at Brockhurst nearly five years ago, she again laughed. No, very certainly there was no affinity between the glorious and naughty city of Naples and that mild-natured, well-drilled little English girl. Who was it, then? Who? But whoever the fair unknown rival might be, Helen hated her increasingly as the hours passed, 
regarding her as an enemy, a creature to be exterminated and swept off the board. Jealousy pricked her desire of conquest. An intrigue with Richard Carmody offered singular, unique attractions, but the force of such attractions was immensely enhanced by the excitement of wresting his affections away from another woman. Suddenly, in the full swing of these meditations, as she reviewed them for the hundredth time, Zélie's voice claimed her attention. "'I made the inquiries, Madame commanded.' "'Well?' Helen said. She was standing fastening clusters of topaz in the bosom of her dress. "'The servants in this house are very reserved. They are unwilling to give information regarding their master's habits. I could only learn that Sir Richard occupies the entresol, communicating as it does with the garden no doubt it is convenient to a gentleman so afflicted as himself helen bowed herself together while the black lace and china crepe skirt slipped over her head emerging from which temporary eclipse she said but do people stay here much does my cousin entertain that is what i told you to find out as i tell madame the servants are difficult of approach they are very correct they fear their master but they also adore him charles can obtain little more information than myself but he infers that sir richard when at the villa lives in retirement that he is subject to fits of melancholy there will be little diversion for madame it is to be feared but what would you have even though one should be young and rich ce ne serait que peu amusant d'être estropié d'être monstre enfin helen drew in her breath with a little sigh of content while taking a final look at herself in the oval glass the soft floating draperies the many jewels each with its heart of quick yellow-pink light produced a combination at once sombre and vivid it satisfied her sense of artistic fitness decidedly she did well to begin with the black dress since it had in it a quality rather of romance than of worldliness meanwhile zélie kneeling straightened out the folds of the long train ah she exclaimed i had forgotten also to inform madame that Monsieur Destournel has arrived in Naples. Charles, thinking of nothing less than such an encounter, met him this morning on the quay of the Santa Lucia. Helen wheeled round violently, much to the discomfiture of those carefully adjusted folds. Intolerable man! she cried. What on earth is he doing here? oh that charles naturally could not inquire oh, will madame kindly remain tranquil for a moment she has torn a small piece of lace which must be controlled by a pin probably monsieur is still en voyage is visiting friends as is madame herself a sudden distrust that the black dress was too mature that it constituted an admission of departing youth invaded helen the reflection in the oval mirror once more caused her discomfort. "'Tell Charles that I am no longer acquainted with Monsieur Destonnel. If he presumes to call, he is to be refused.' Helen set her teeth, but whether in anger towards her discarded lover or the black dress, she would have found it difficult to declare. 
again uncertainty held her suspicion of circumstances and in a degree of herself the lady's maid imperturbable just conceivably impertinent in manner had risen to her feet there she said it will be secure for to-night if madame will exercise a moderate degree of caution and avoid abrupt movements charles says that monsieur inquired very urgently after madame he appeared dejected and in weak health he was agitated on meeting charles he trembled a little more and he would have wept it would be well perhaps that madame should give charles her orders regarding monsieur herself you should not have made me wear this gown helen broke out inconsequently it's depressing it's hideous i want to change it impossible madame is already a little late and there is nothing wrong with the costume madame looks magnificent also her wardrobe is at present limited the evening dresses will barely suffice for a stay of a week and it is not possible for me to construct a new one in under ten days thereupon an opening of doors and voice from the anteroom announcing dinner is served milady sir richard is in the dining-room and helen swept forward somewhat stormy and cassandra-like in her dusky garments passing out through the high narrow doorway she turned her head charles under no circumstance none understand am i at home to monsieur d'estournel very good milady and as he closed the double doors the manservant looked at the lady's maid his tongue in his cheek but on the journey through the noble suite of rooms helen's spirits revived somewhat her fair head her warm glancing jewels her graceful and measured movements as given back by many tall mirrors renewed her self-confidence she too must be fond of her own image by the way that unknown rival to the dream of whose approval richard comedy had consecrated these splendid furnishings witness the multiplicity of looking-glasses and then the prospect of this tete-a-tete dinner the interest of her host powerful and enigmatic personality provoked her interest to the point not only of obliterating remembrance of the ill-timed advent of her ex-lover but of inducing something as closely akin to self-forgetfulness as was possible to her self-centred nature she grew hotly anxious to obtain to charm if it might be to usurp the whole field of richard's attention and imagination a small round table showed as an island of tender light in the dimness of the vast room and richard sitting at it awaiting her coming appeared more nearly related to the richard of brockhurst under five years ago than he had done during the interview of the morning in any case she took him more for granted while he if still inscrutable and unsmiling proved an eminently agreeable companion ready of conversation and very much at his ease very much a cultivated man of the world studious a little excessively so she thought in his avoidance of the personal note and this at once piqued helen and incited her to intellectual effort if this was what he wanted well he should have it if he elected to talk of travel of ancient and alien religions of modern literature and art she could meet him more than half-way 
her intelligence ran nimbly from subject to subject point to point she struck out daring hypotheses indulged in ingenious paradox her mind charmed by her own eloquence her body comforted by costly wines and delicate meats nor did she fail to listen also knowing how very dear to every man is the sound of his own voice or omit to offer refined flattery of quick agreement and seasonable laughter it was late when she rose from the table at last i have had a delightful dinner she said absolutely delightful and now i will encroach no longer on your time or good nature richard you have your own occupations no doubt so with thanks for shelter and generous entertainment we part for to-night she held out her hand smiling but with an admirable effect of discretion all ardour all intimacy kept in check by self-respect and well-bred dignity madame de valorbe was enchanted with the reserve of her own demeanour let it be well understood that she was the least importunate the least exacting and the most adaptable of guests richard took her outstretched hand for the briefest period compatible with courtesy and a momentary spasm so she fancied contracted his face you're very welcome helen he said if it is warm let us breakfast in the pavilion to-morrow twelve uh, does that suit you good-night upon the inlaid writing-table in the ante-room helen found a long and impassioned epistle from paul destournel perusal of it did not minister to peaceful sleep in the small hours she left her bed threw a silk dressing-gown about her and drew aside the heavy blue-purple window-curtain and looked out the sky was clear and starlit naples with its curving lines of innumerable lights lay outstretched below in the southeast midway between the two a blood-red fire marked the summit of vesuvius while in the dimly seen garden immediately beneath the paved alleys of which showed curiously pale asserting themselves against the darkness of the flower borders and otherwise impenetrable shadows of the ilex and cypress grove a living creature moved black slow of pace and strange of shape at first helen took it for some strayed animal it alarmed her exciting her to wildest conjectures as to its nature and purpose wandering in the grounds of the villa thus and then as it passed beyond the dusky shade of the trees she recognised it richard calmedy shuffled forward haltingly to the terminal wall of the garden leaned his arms on it looking down at the beautiful and vicious city and out into the night helen de valorbe shivered the marble floor striking up chill for all the thickness of the carpet to her bare feet her eyes were hard with excitement and her breath came very quick suddenly yielding to an impulse of superstitious terror she dragged the curtains together shutting out that very pitiful sight and turning fled across the room and buried herself breathless and trembling beneath the sheets of the soft warm faintly fragrant bed he is horrible she said aloud horrible and it has come to me at last it has come i love i love End of chapter 3 of book 5